First off, there is no perfect murder. The bodies are part of the investigation for the police. For me, the bodies are everything. I try to explain to her what I did for a living. And she said, you know, until I met you, I never thought about death. When I left Fulton County, uh, the last time I left my office in Atlanta was in the back of an ambulance. And I'll be honest with you, when you were talking about the decades of seeing death, I was wondering in the back of my mind, like, how has this not impacted him? Hello, welcome to another episode of the Dre and Smiley, the Inner Circle Podcast. All right. So excited to have uh, our guest that we have on today, which is Joseph Scott Morgan. Joseph Scott Morgan is an author and professor and forensic scientist who is considered one of the leading experts in the coroner system in the United States. He has appeared for the past two years on both Headline News and CNN as the on-air forensics expert. In 2013, he was named Georgia Author of the Year for his memoir entitled Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. Sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Additionally, Joe Scott, as he likes to be called, um, has a highly rated podcast titled Body Bags. Body Bags is a podcast where he explores a world that not many have had a chance to visit. The realm of death. So with that, Joe Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Quite an honor. So let me let me ask you this. With your background, is it safe to assume that you could probably commit the perfect murder? <laughs> no. no I, uh, I'm joking. Yeah, I'm lot, joking. Don't, don't answer that. that. I don't want to, I don't want anyone around you to come up missing and they have no, to assume no, it's no, you. No, no. <laughs> no. Let me let me set all let me let me just set the record straight. First yeah. off, there is no perfect murder. Ah. Uh, a lot of people sit around and opine about that and carry on, you know, over a campfire or over drinks or uh Maybe somebody looks at somebody and says, "Hey, I can commit the perfect murder," but there, right. there is, there's no such animal that exists. There is no perfect murder. It's uh, most of the time, if people believe that there has been a perfect murder that has been committed, there is some stone that has yet to be overturned and looked mm. beneath. And sometimes you got to go into the really deep, dark areas. Those places that me, most people, you know, what's the old saying about where angels fear to tread? Mm. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of that, it comes down to that. Um, you know, conducting a, a real death investigation is, it's, um, it's, it's not tedious, but it's painstaking. If you, if you ever get a chance to see a Swiss clockmaker at work, the finest switch, the Swiss timepiece being made. That that's the mentality that you have to have. You have to have uh, a real commitment to detail, looking beyond uh, what is staring you in the face, and sometimes it's the most horrible things that you can imagine. Um, and so you have to be able to get past the horror of what you're seeing. And then dig into the science because therein lie the answers most of the time. And that's, you know, some people are, are very impatient, you know, um, kind of like a fine wine. You know, people mm. want to uncork it, but sometimes you got to wait. Sometimes it takes time for it to mature. And some things are just not solved overnight. They're just not. But we live in a microwave world, don't we? I mean, we do. everybody wants things immediately. And we've seen that played out in the, in the news media. It's been played out for years and years. It's not just, you know, it's not just a recent manifestation. There is sure. nothing new under the sun. Tell me this. So I was thinking, thinking of the best way to kind of climb into your head and, and get a sense of how you approach a crime scene. I want to do that. And then afterwards, we're going to go back a ways in terms of how you yeah. got into this industry. Sure. So I'm going to, I'm going to play the detective. 
I'm going to paint okay. a picture of the crime scene. And we'll take maybe a minute, two minutes or so, and walk me through the questions you would ask. I'm the detective. I'll lay out the crime scene and tell me what, you know, how you would kind of unravel what happened here. There's okay. a young woman who's been shot in the head. Okay. Um, she's sitting on the couch, kind of slumped over. Next to her, there's a young man who's also been shot in the head. Um, the gun is there um, near his hand. Um, it's an apartment. The apartment is empty. No one else is there. And based on the investigation, no one else has entered the home or left the home um, okay. but these two. Action. <laughs> uh, the, no, the investigation the investigation got started way before I ever, someone like me ever arrived. So from the moment in time that that patrol officer rolled up at the scene, I want to dig back in to the histrionics here. How, how was this, how did, how did, how did this couple come to be found? Because it, it's always, it, it's always, that's always key. And so many mm. times, and it goes back to, you know, this idea of, of seeping down into the groundwater, the, your purpose and understanding that it takes time. And you have to go back and look for those devils that indwell the details. You know, who made that initial contact? Was, did somebody peep through the window? Was there an outer balcony? Did somebody see that the door had been kicked in? Uh, did anybody note that when um, they arrived at the apartment, the door may or may not have shown evidence that it had been manipulated in some way? Because you can come upon a locked door, certainly in an apartment, and the door would be locked. But that's not necessarily a clue. That just means that the door had been locked. So who, who had access to these two individuals? And our working premise, you know, understand that from in my world, um, and this, I don't, I don't want to bury the lead, but in my world, I'm, I'm not a homicide detective. In my world, I'm a medical legal death investigator. So um, that means that I'm the eyes and the ears of the forensic pathologist on the scene. Because contrary to what you see on television, you know, they don't go out into the field at all. I mean, on rare occasions, they might. Um, so... My interest in this case, these two individuals that are deceased, is going to be different than what the police are looking at. The bodies, and I know that some police will take exception to this, the bodies are part of the investigation for the police. For me, the bodies are everything. Uh, the end game for the police is to, quote unquote, bring justice, whatever that means. I don't, I don't have an interest in that, because that's not what I'm trying to do. I have an interest in determining manner and cause of death and who they are. And mm. if you find out who they are, a lot of stuff, you know, it's like in the wintertime, particularly down here in the South, if you hadn't broke out your sweaters when you're little, and your mama gives you a sweater when it's cold outside mm. and a string holding, you know, that's hanging down off of it. What does she tell you? Baby, don't pull that string. The whole mm. thing will come unraveled. Mm -hmm. And you look for that string to pull on it. Mama always told you not to pull on it. And that string represents the science that goes into the scene. Because, you know, the police, their focus most of the time is looking for a perpetrator. And our working, our working premise in all cases, and I don't care if it's, forgive my Southern vernacular, but I don't care if it's an 88-year-old mama that's found dead in bed. Uh, my working assumption is that she's the victim of homicide. Because to not make that assumption from Jump Street is to do a disservice to her. Because I have to eliminate that first. So I work every case as a medical legal death investigator from the perspective of this is a homicide. And once I can eliminate that, then I'm down to the other four manners of death. You know, suicide, accidental, natural, uh, undetermined. And therein, you know, kind of rest where I dance. And then I feed that information to the police. Of course, I feed it back to the forensic pathologist who's not at the scene. 
Um, our spectrum is very broad, you know, because most of the time police, they, the deaths that they get involved in, motor vehicle accidents, homicides, um, those sorts of things, death at the hand of another, which is a homicide, it ends for them there. But my spectrum is very broad because I cover all the, you know, we don't hear about all the suicides that we investigate. You know, suicides, mm -hmm. depending upon where you where you live, uh, can outnumber homicides two to one, maybe three to one. So, and people don't understand that. They don't understand how many suicides there are out there. And certainly accidents, um, you know, uh, and then the natural deaths. Natural deaths are where you truly become a real investigator because you're looking to natural disease pathology. And, you know, most of us are going to die. Contrary to what news media says, they, they make it sound like everybody's going around killing each other, you know, cutting everybody's heads off. Right. That's just, I mean, there's a lot of violence in our country. We have to admit that and acknowledge right. that. But the lion's share of people are going to die of some kind of natural disease process. Question is, do you have people that are sufficient to the task to ask the right question? So tell me this, Joe Scott, that's a lot of information that's useful. Yeah, sorry. An area that, no, no, it's great. It's great. It's an area that most of us have never thought of and right. probably have no reason to. And we're fortunate in that respect. So here's, here's the big question. How did you get into this area in terms of a profession? We know. T tell me about when you were playing with your, you know, your, your uh, cowboys and Indians. Were you the one that stood aside and said, well, let me come in and figure out how this cowboy died. Were you, <laughs> how, how did you get into this? No, it, it's kind of an interesting, you know, and I write about this in Blood Beneath My Feet. Uh, I wrote that many years ago, and it's actually a therapeutic memoir. It's not a true crime. I talk about cases I've worked, but I talk about the stuff that I went through as a kid, I had a pretty rough upbringing. Um, and back to what you said earlier, most people don't think about it. I'll give you a quick aside uh, on, I was working in Atlanta uh, at the medical examiner's office in Atlanta. My wife and I had our first date. We'd gone to a Braves game and I'd taken her out to this pizza joint. It's called Fellini's uh, and it's on Peachtree Street. And of course, everything's named Peachtree Street in Atlanta, but uh, we went to this place and we're sitting there eating pizza and just kind of, you know, trying to, you know how you are on first date. You're just trying sure. to understand the other person. And she, <laughs> and she said, uh, I tried to explain to her what I did for a living. And she said, you know, until I met you, I never thought about death. And you can take that any way you want, you know, on a first date, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean and, exactly? <laughs> but she, she wound up, you know, we wound up having another date the next day. So, okay. you know, I'm not That's saying I'm a big. player or anything, but it worked out well. <laughs> uh, close the deal? Well, it worked out well for me, man. It, it did. Yeah. Absolutely. A lot in my life. But, yeah. Yeah. So for me, um, I come from what I refer to as I have a legacy of death in my family. I'm. I'm named after a homicide victim in my family. So a man that was murdered 13 years before I was ever born um, was shot down in the middle of the street in uh, West Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, mm. And he was the brother of my uh, paternal grandmother, whom I adore. Uh, you know, again, I hate to keep talking about I'm, I'm a Southerner. That's all I know. You know, in the South, we we honor our grandparents. I mean, our grandparents are for many of us in my case, you know, my grandmother, you know, essentially raised me. And so anything that comes, you know, from grandma's mouth, is like the burning bush, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and I heard stories of that, um, you know, growing up, uh, my uncle Joe, whom I never met, his name was Joseph. And, and then of course, um, I guess moving forward, <clears throat> Moving forward, I when I was about six, I guess I was six or seven, six, uh, five or six, I can't remember. Um, my my father um, tried to murder my family while I was in the house, and um, and so my grandmother hid me beneath a bed. And uh, if you if you have praying praying grandmother. Um, you know, I remember, I can still recall to this day, peeking out from beneath the bed and seeing her knees on the floor, crying out to God to please save us. And, um, of course, my, my father didn't obviously kill us, but that had a real impact on me. And uh, I was I was one of those kids that 
had a rough upbringing and I'm, I made a decision, I think at some point in time in my life, I was going to do something with my life um, that would, I guess in one way kind of set me apart. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of direction. I was pretty good in high school, that sort of thing. I actually took a class in high school. My high school, they offered a class called Thanatology. Most people don't know what that is, but I was a senior in high school and I didn't want to take Spanish. So I took this class called Thanatology and it's a study of death. I mean, we went to a funeral home. We went to the morgue of the hospital, local hospital, uh, visited graveyards, uh, had a pathologist actually come in and speak to us, funeral director come in and speak to us, talk, talk to us about how bodies are embalmed. And we studied a lot of kind of the classics relative to that. That had a little bit of an impact on me. And then um, when I finally made my way back down to, I grew up in my, when my dad got home from Vietnam, you know, back then they used to, um, if you broke the law back in those days during the Vietnam era, they would tell you that, look, you got two choices. You need to go to the penitentiary. You can join the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's what they did with him. They sent him off to Vietnam. When he got back from Vietnam, he grabbed me and my mother and took us to Georgia and then left us. And we had nobody there. So, and I actually wound up growing up in Georgia, but my ancestral home has always been Louisiana and I consider myself a Louisianian. And anyway, when I had an opportunity to finally make it back down to Louisiana with my extended family, um, I was privileged enough to get a job at a hospital while I was going to college. And it just so happened. It's like, you know, this kind of intersection of the universe. It just so happened that, uh, the morgue was being renovated in the parish. They don't have counties, they have parishes. And um, I was working in a hospital. I worked as a security guard, an ER tech, and a psych tech. And I was picking up as many shifts as I could. And so the coroner was doing all of the autopsies for the parish there. And I started, I had to check bodies in and check them out. And I became friends with one of the coroner investigators. And the next thing I knew on my off time, when I wasn't going to school or working, I was going to autopsies. I actually went and you know, you're crazy when you show up on your off time and you're in a room with decomposing bodies, (laughs) but I'd always been a science guy and it kind of put the hook in me. And I found something that I was, I was the person that would not run out of the room when I had flies lighting on me coming off of a dead body. And as morbid as that is, I, I love the science of it, even the science of decay. And I, I had the privilege of sitting at the feet of a forensic pathologist who saw value in me and actually trained me. Um, and it wasn't like a formal education at that time. And you can't do that anymore. Um, and I, I just started what I what I would do is I would volunteer to sweep and mop the morgue. Um, you know, and if you've never been to a morgue, particularly one that's a high volume morgue um, in an autopsy room, it's like a slaughterhouse. I mean, there's blood everywhere. You're doing a lot of bodies. You go from one to the next because people never stop dying. And I don't think most of the public understands that. So I went from sweeping and mopping and cleaning up instruments to they, the doctor looked at me one day and said, do you want to learn how to close a body? And it's not like it's surgery. Uh, but they taught me how to do a baseball switch, uh, baseball stitch on a body. Mm. And I was, I was hooked. Next thing I knew, he said, do you want to open? Yeah, I'll open. And it was a weird, <laughs> it was kind of one of those weird moments you never forget. You know, the first time that you, you take a scalpel in your hand and you open up a human body, uh, because it's a big Y incision. Um, and then you, you begin to do the dissection, uh, the evisceration removal of the organs you have to learn to take care. And that was that was part of it, because when you're you know, you get your hand slapped a lot, you know, because if you don't do it right, you get you get one shot, particularly if you're working cases that are you have very delicate evidence. You know, if you're working a rape homicide or you've got a multiple gunshot wound case where you've got bullet tracks that are traversing through a body, um, you have some kind of indwelling disease that you have to be very careful, you know, not to disrupt it so you can actually see that pathology in place before you remove mm. like a tumor or something like that. So mm. I learned real quick that I had to pay attention if I wanted to remain. And so back to your initial question, I'm sorry, I'm 
running kind of long here, but no, you're good. The, the, that little boy in me wanted to do something that was going to occupy me as a grown man. Um, and I was young. I was, I should, I had no business doing what I was doing. Um, that I would not get off on some wild tangent coming from a home that was not that good, mm. that I would have a skill set where, and it's very, I hate the word narcissistic because it gets used a lot, but um, where I could, I was able to say with pride that I did something that nobody else does. And, you know, for good or for bad, if you don't like it, that's fine. But I have a skill set that no one else has. And it, it paid off just, just being present. I think in that moment and being there and being willing to do those jobs that no one else would want to do. I've, I've seen things in my world that most people, you know, that maybe live a couple of lifetimes could never even fathom uh, being inside of a, a super tanker, retrieving a body that's fallen in or uh, being in an airplane crash or being inside of a locomotive, you know, because a body has been run over on a train track and it's real yeah. horrible stuff, but it's, it was, it was never lacking for intellectual stimulation. You know, it's interesting as you share that, I'm going to pass it back to, to Smiley here in a second, but I just want to share a thought. What, one of the things that I find that's a common thread for those that have chosen whatever their selected profession is, they have found success in it, is that they were exposed at some point in their lives to, to this, this moment where they realize, ah, this is it for you. You were fortunate and that you were exposed to it um, on numerous occasions. And for, for whatever reasons, a number, a number of people saw in you the capacity to do these small things, which led to bigger things and more and more. And so now you have a wealth of knowledge that you were able to gain from that. Smiley, I know you wanted to ask a question. No, so I was I was sorry. so uh, amazed when you mentioned it to the made an analogy or conspiracy comparison to a slaughterhouse. I, I my day job, I work yeah. in the food business, and I was telling Andre in December I was in Toronto at a slaughterhouse where they do. If you're right, it's one after the other, and they're slaughtering these these hogs. And, yeah, it is, and it's just uh, oh yeah, fast and it's precision work and and all this stuff, but. When you mentioned the four different categories of death, suicide, accident, natural, mm. and undetermined, when you look at statistics today in light of 2023 and all the craziness that's going on, and I, I listened to your podcast on body bags with the Murdoffs and, and the Idaho, oh, that's one of the next on my list, but yeah. do you find that back, say, in the 80s or even the 60s? It wasn't two to one or two to three suicides to death. It was higher, or is that a constant number as we go through decade to decade, or is it really higher now that we? It's more amplified because social media is so prevalent. We see more of the suicides, or are these constant numbers as we look over time? Well, the way I, I use Robin Williams as an mm -hmm. example. Uh, I've had to talk about his death in Philip Seymour Hoffman extensively, you know, on air. Uh, when I was doing stuff with HLN, I, I don't do any, they're, they're not a thing anymore. So I don't do anything with them. I'm, you know, I do a lot of other networks now. And um, back when they passed away, um, you know, you, you never, you never hear about suicides unless it's a celebrity. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But there's still just as much sorrow and grief um, by that that happens to those among us that um, don't rise to that level of notoriety. And it's, it's, it's a very sad thing. There's a lot of sad, lonely people out there. You know, and the, you know, the British for uh, there's you know, there's a, a comment the British made, you know, that's that's uh, associated with the British. And I forgive me, I can't remember the, the author, uh, but. You know, they talk about the uh, British talking about, uh, you know, we live lives of quiet desperation. Um, I think that it I love the fact that you mentioned the word amplified because it is amplified. You know, these devices that we carry with us, social media, all of these things, you know, you uh, people compare themselves to a standard and it's very hollow. It's very, very hollow, um, you know, and unfortunately, you know, we we've, we've got a lot of kids right now that uh, are constantly, they're not, you know, when I was a kid, you kind of 
I measured myself against people in my homeroom, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or that I played ball with, or, you know, that I went to youth group at my church or whatever it was that, but now you just, just imagine this kind of endless sea that these kids are literally just kind of paddling in. And, and it's, it goes, it's, it's, it's infinite. You know, when you open up any of the social media platforms, you've got people, you're comparing yourself to people in Russia or Austria or mm -hmm. Japan, you know, and, you know, people are trying to draw parallels between themselves and these people that live in such great distances that they'll never know. They think they know them, but they, they don't know. I, I can't truly give you a, a definitive answer. Um, I, I know that when I was a very young man, um, I was, I was kind of gut punched when I went to work for the corner in New Orleans. That's where I started um, by the number of suicides that I saw, because I was like, dude, I, I didn't know this happened. You know, I, I just, I really didn't. I knew that suicides happened, but I didn't know to this degree, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I hate, you know, people use, use terms like uh, epidemic and mm. with not really knowing what an epidemic is, from, mm -hmm. you know, from, you know, just like a epidemiology standpoint, you're, you know, you're studying disease. Um, I hate to really use that term, but it's, it's that thing that is unspoken about, you know, because you grow up, it, suicide used to be a very shameful thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, I'm, I know that I'm uh, quite a bit older than you gentlemen, but, you know, yeah. uh, if you've ever had a suicide in your family in the past, no one dare mention it. Yeah. I mean, at all. There was all kinds of shame that was associated with it. And, you know, but now, you know, it's, it's nothing to walk, you know, I teach at, I'm a professor at Jacksonville State University in Alabama. And, and so I've, you know, I'll I'll have my medical legal cat class and I'll talk about suicide investigation. I'll I'll say, you know, just by show of hands, do you know of anybody in the class that's committed suicide? Generally, it's I'm not going to say it's three quarters, but it's easily two thirds. Oh. And I think in the past, you never would have heard about that. Yeah. You know, so it's it's and you don't know how much of that is. They've heard about it. Maybe they've heard about it on social media. And I dare not go into that area. Do you have one in your family? Mm. Because again, to me, I'm kind of old slope. school. It's very, it's very personal. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not something you don't want to go down that road. Right. But conversely, we've got a lot of people that share more than they should yeah. too. You know what I I'm saying? They're not afraid 100%. to tell you everything about themselves. hundred percent. For what, for yeah. whatever reason, you know, but yeah, yeah it's, a. Uh, it, that was probably the most shocking mm -hmm. thing. And that's, that's compared to, some of the most horrific homicides that people can imagine that I've, I've borne witness to the aftermath of, you know, walking in, you got a family of eight that's just been eradicated, a mass shooting or a family that has died of, uh, of uh, carbon monoxide asphyxiation because the uncle reversed the, the, uh, the vent on the, on the space heater and it blew carbon monoxide into the house and killed everybody in the bed. Mm. You know, even by that measure, the number of suicides is, is shocking in my field, you know, when you see it. And so, but, you know, back to my earlier premise, you know, I, I look at any time somebody meets with violence, um, a violent end, whether it's, you know, a hanging or a shooting, self-inflicted gunshot wound, you don't see as many overdoses as you might think. Uh, you don't see as many cuttings. I think as people think you see a lot of gunshot wounds and hangings in my experience, that's just my little piece of the pie. I can't speak to all of my other colleagues. That's, Joe's got more of a little piece of pie. Um, even by that measure, there, there's a lot of them out there. A lot of them. Wow. It's, it's um, when you mentioned earlier um, that you're with your title, you actually go to the field and I'm, I'm a little older. I, mm -hmm. I remember um, Quincy, remember the Quincy show. And then yeah. uh, I'm from, I'm oh, from yeah. Pittsburgh and we had a guy and, and I, I, I want to see if you're a medical examiner or a coroner, what's the difference. But the guy we had was Sarah Weck. When I was young, coming up, I know, you know Sarah. Sarah. Oh, so he yeah. was real. Yeah, I've, I've, I've actually, I've actually spoken it. No Duquesne. way. So I'm from there, um, Duquesne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I love, I love Pittsburgh. One of my best friends. <laughs> is a, 
is a is a yenzer, and so he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got to hear about the Penguins and the Pirates and the Steelers all the time, and of course, being from South Louisiana, I'm a Saints oh. fan. So you know, we go back and back over, back and forth over that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've been in Pittsburgh. Is I love Pittsburgh. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite places. It truly is. I love going there. I love the the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're different than the east side totally. of the state for me. Totally. Um, I love, it's like being in the Midwest and you got the big city and the city is beautiful. I don't know. I've been to some pretty places. I don't know for anybody that's never been to Pittsburgh when you, and I know you've heard people say this at night when you come out of that tunnel it's incredible, and you hit those bridges and it just explodes in front of your face like that. It is one of the most beautiful panoramic things I've ever seen. I was shocked. The first time I, it's like something is burned into my brain. I'll never forget as long as I oh, live. Oh, I, I, I appreciate that. So, so is your position similar to Sarawak or is it different? Are you more like a Quincy or more like the CSI guys that go in a film? Oh, no, 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 like, no, I'll, I'll give you an example, a real good example for uh, Dr. Weck. Okay. With him being a chief, uh, he was the chief medical examiner for Allegheny mm-hmm. County. I think, I think mm-hmm. that's right. I, I'm not sure. At any rate, he would have had investigators. You have ME or coroner invest, depending upon what system you're under. Um, you would have those working in your office. People like me. I'm a medical legal death investigator. I've worked in a coroner's office in New Orleans or Jefferson Parish, which is where my family is from. It's the big metro area around New Orleans. And then, um, and then in Atlanta, you have a medical examiner for Fulton County. And that handles the city of Atlanta and Alpharetta and Roswell and Union City and College Park and East Point, all the cities that you've heard about, the Fulton County Medical Examiner handles the whole county. So Atlanta, to kind of break it down, like for instance, if you look at Atlanta, um, you've got all these little towns, a lot of them are not little anymore. um, And then you've got the city of Atlanta. Well, each one of those cities will have their own police department and their own homicide detectives. All right. So, but I and my colleagues there serviced all of those cities as death investigators. So we would, we might have, like we might catch a homicide. Like I've, I've spent weekends, you know, alone where I worked by myself. I might catch two homicides in the city of Atlanta. And then one comes up on college in college park or East point or one comes up in Alpharetta. So you have to learn how to pace yourself, utilize your time as best you can, because, you know, for each one of those cities, their homicide is the most important one, or their suicide or their motor vehicle accident, or whatever it is, theirs is the most important one. But I've got multiple people in other locations that are waiting for me to show up and my driver to show up. So I have to work the scene separately from the cop. cops. I get information, they get information from me, but I have a whole series of other things that I do. I examine a body at the scene. I do temperatures on the body to try to determine what's called the postmortem interval, the PMI, the time since death. You know, we check for rigor mortis, body temperature, liver mortis, the settling of blood. We try to give the investigators at the scene a quick snapshot of what we think these injuries mean that they're seeing. And you're not going to have the full burst of that until you get the body back to the autopsy room and you've got it in under surgical lighting. That's why you don't, um, if you've ever watched a newscast and they'll say the cause of death is pending per the results of the coroner, the medical examiner. What that means is that I'm not going to sit here. And if I'm out on the scene of say in a dark area, like in a wooded area where we found somebody that has just been, you know, really chewed pieces, uh, traumatized, I'm not going to sit here and give you a sequence of of uh, what I believe the injuries, how the injuries took place. I'm not even going to tell you if it's a gunshot wound or not. I'm going to say you have a circular defect here, circular defect there, because at the scene I can't assess if it's an injury, an entrance or an exit. Um, I'm going to say this looks like it might be a gunshot wound, or I'll say this looks like a stab wound. But I've had stab wounds that look like gunshot wounds. You know, for a long time, the homeless population carried. Uh, bits of rebar that they would file on one end and they would wrap it with a, uh, a bit of duct tape and keep it in their pocket. And it's like a shank in prison, 
but it's a steel piece of rebar. And so they would stab people with it and withdraw it. And when you look at that defect in the body, it kind of resembles a nine millimeter bullet hole. So I don't, uh. I don't, I don't, I don't commit at the scene to that. I just talk about that. I see trauma. I try to give them an idea of what they might look at. Now you might have shell casings laying around. There's no way to really correlate it at that time. So we try to gather as much as we can at the scene and try to begin to understand my dogs are barking. So, um, so we, we try to try to understand all of that and then get that data back to the morgue. So when we're in great conditions with, and it's, it's surgical, it's uh, surgical lighting, these intense lights. If you've ever been to a surgery suite, they leave nothing to chance in that environment. They blast out all of the darkness with these lights. And we do the same thing in the morgue. We also do x-rays before we do the, uh, the examination on the body. So we, we really are able to hold forth. And, you know, the, the public gets very impatient, you know, when we take a long time, you know, um, you know, you were talking about the Idaho case. I think you, you yes. did with Coburger and they wanted information immediately. Dude, you don't get information immediately. That's, you know, that's down the hall and to the left. If you want crappy work, go go that way. Because people that actually do this for a living are not going to turn this around overnight. And you're a fool if you think that that's, if that's the way it should work. It takes time. You know, you still have to wait and get toxicology results. I was shocked with that case. Um, you know, I think the coroner came out like the next day, not under the direction of the police. And she made some interesting comments. I'll just say there were interesting comments prior to all of the data being in. And it really, you know, it really, it stirred things up more than they needed to be stirred up at that moment in time. And you see that it's not just in that case, it's a lot of cases. And people, you get those intense lights of the media on you. And it's, if you're not used to it, it's a heavy burden, man. I mean, because they're calling you all the time. They want answers. The news cycle's running. So you're having to meet that standard. And you're also, you, look, you got a great family to deal yeah. with, too. So, yeah. You know, you know, it's funny you touched on that because that, that's kind of the direction I wanted to go with my next question here. So mm -hmm. with any uh, profession or industry, mm -hmm. there's the potential that there's external factors that kind of uh, can be a pressure. For example, those that work in healthcare, physicians, for example, one of the right. biggest challenges they face right now is having to deal with insurance companies, right? In terms right. of, you know, paying that sort of thing. So for you, one thing that's clear is that you have a high passion for what you're doing. You've been doing it for a number of decades. Right. When you look at the external pressures, talk to me a little bit about, about what those external pressures are and how you're dealing with them. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's tough. If you're talking about external pressure, um, one of the, the biggest things that you have to deal with, I think, is probably well, first off, and this goes to a bigger issue that we can explore if you guys wish. Um, there are certain things in life that you encounter every single day. Okay. Um, you get your news every morning. Maybe you drink your favorite cup of coffee. You have it fixed just like you want it. You're used to that. You're, uh, you get a kiss from your sweetheart. Um, you eat your favorite meal, you go to work or to a job that is essentially the same thing kind of every day. You become highly skilled at it. Um, you take a family that has somebody like me show up at their door. And I've done 2,000 in-person notifications. And suddenly it's like, and I, I'm saying this metaphorically, okay? It's almost like you, you go to a stranger's home that you've never met and you pull a pin on a grenade and throw it in the door and shut it. That's what you, you just walk away. A stranger. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you go back in and, you know, I've had all kinds of things happen to me when I've notified families I've had, I've been attacked. I had a lady that started dancing and celebrating. It's run the gamut, you know? Um, but, you know, the lion's share of people, they don't, they don't encounter death. They, they see it on the news. And when they come across 
someone like me, not me, because I'm, I'm nothing necessarily special. There's other people out there doing. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm teaching now. Thank God. Um, there are people out there that right as we speak right now, there is some medical legal death investigator out there right now that's knocking on somebody's door. Just understand that. It could be for any number of different types of deaths. It's not just homicides. It's maybe a suicide or a natural death or an accident. Um, nobody, nobody knows when death is going to make an appearance. One of my favorite movies is Meet Joe Black because, you know, he, it's a movie with Anthony Hopkins and, and uh, Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt literally plays an anthropomorphic uh, embodiment of death that is visiting Anthony Hopkins character in the scene. It's very powerful for me. It is because death is, it's always here. So you've, you've got this pressure that comes about in my line of work in dealing with families and understanding this. There's, there's no, in my field, there's no going out to break up domestic violence calls. There's no getting kitty cats out of trees. There's no helping find a lost child. Um, there's no helping somebody recover a stolen bicycle. Everything that we do in my field is death. Day in, day out, seven days a week, every day of the year. It never stops. It doesn't stop on Thanksgiving or Christmas or any of these things. We get, we get, you never truly get used to it, but you, it becomes part of who you are. The reality is this, of this is the fact that when you go to speak to a family, they've been existing on this kind of little sheltered island where their life is just kind of clipping along. They don't have, they have cares, but they don't have these kind of cares. And then suddenly they're faced with the reality that that person that maybe they held as a baby or that they shared a bed with for years or that they had crosswords with the last time that they saw them, the person's gone. They ain't coming back ever, ever. And it's, it's an odd thing because it's weird. I, I, probably my friends in social work and psychology will disagree with me, but, you know, it happens. <laughs> yeah. it, it's really weird. You know, they talk about the stuff of grief. Um, in my line of work, it's like we see them. We see these stages of grief. When you first notify a family, you'll actually sometimes see them all played out in a microcosm, like in a second, where people mm. go shocked disbelief, anger, don't ever quite see acceptance, but they'll go through, they'll run through this huge emotional gamut in the beginning. And, and they're faced, you know, when you, cause when I turn on my heel, I, I'd love to give everybody in the world a hug and comfort them. You try to do the best you can, but I got family of my own and I'm going to have to go back home. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of this idea that you got to love bank and uh, you can only make so many withdrawals from it. And it's a weird position to be in. when You see somebody grieving and heart sick and you know that when you leave, they might be there all alone. You know, I, I hated those cases where I had to leave, <clears throat> leave a parent all alone at home after their child had died in a motor vehicle accident or particularly mm. aged people, you know, when you go to their home and maybe they've already lost a spouse and they find out that mm. their adult child has died, you want to sit there with them and say, can I call, do you have a sister or somebody? And they look up at you and this has happened to me any number of times. I ain't got so, no, I ain't got no. Problem. So for people in your profession, dealing with death and emotion and grief, who do you do? We had on um, our podcast, a couple, um, psychiatrists and people, they talked about the suicide uh, from a perspective, from their medical perspective. But when you're dealing with so much death, I was, I was, when you're speaking and you mentioned the defects on the bodies, that's the same terminology right. we use in the slaughterhouses. The pork had a defect or the cattle had a defect. So I have a defect report. And, right. and then what I was thinking when you were speaking, uh, visiting these households or these people, in our space, the person in the kill room, they only get to work so many shifts, and then we have to put them somewhere else because 
just the, the you watch wow. the animal if you ever seen a, a hog slaughter their eyes are open so mm-hmm. i go through and watch yeah. every aspect of it because i'm doing the software so my thing is for your profession and colleagues do you say it's a mandatory nine six months and then you got to take three weeks vacation to get your get back in or do you work like everyone else and take two years right. or, or yeah it seemed like that grief for that the overwhelming abundance of death does it affect you or does it affect your colleagues how do you keep your sanity yeah, how does it, that's a great question how do you stay professional without the emotional aspect or are there outlets or something you, you don't oh okay you don't it, it uh and um, in my circumstance, when I left Fulton County, uh, the last time I left my office in Atlanta was in the back of an ambulance. And I'd been having the same heart attack for six months. And it wasn't a heart attack. It was panic attacks. And, you know, I'm, I always viewed myself because, you know, I was talking about when I was, you know, growing up, I kind of set my, you know, I, I set my face like Flint, as they say and just kind of pushed on through that I was, that I bore witness to some of the most horrible things you can imagine. And I, you feel like you build up this resiliency. Um, and you, you don't because you never death, death is so unforgiving. It, I mean, and I say that because I talk about death, like it's a person, I, you know, and I would have conversations I know this is going to sound right. I need a psychiatrist and I've seen psychiatrists, <laughs> but I would have, I would have conversations with them, mm-hmm. you know, because, um, toward the end of my career in my, in the back of my mind, I would envision death whispering to me, boy, you see that person, I can do this to you anytime I want to. And I'm carrying that around with me. Mm-hmm. And because you see the end result, I, I got to the point where you know, you develop things like agoraphobia, where I had a fear that everywhere I went, I was going to die. Mm. And um, one of the sweetest sounds I ever heard was the sounds of an ambulance. They came and picked me up and took me away. Um, my medical examiner at the time, I was a senior investigator. I was, I guess I was probably about a year and a half away from my final day. And I was having trouble. I, I really was. Um, and I was still doing my job, still showing up for work and doing my job. Cause you know, you look at everybody else around you to your left and your right. Um, and you're managing a shift and they're there. Mm-hmm. You got to man up. True. You got to man up and do your job. Well, I've been doing my job for two decades by that time. I'd seen so many things and it's it, sooner or later. I, w- I was going to say, I was going to say, you know, your car runs out of gas, but it's not like that. Your, your engine seizes up eventually mm. because of your brain cannot, you know, because I would always fall back on the science of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you become very clinical and you look at what you're trying to examine, but then you have this cacophony of sounds of screaming families, um, of, uh, the smells that light upon you that you never quite get rid of that your normal is not every like you go to a party and people are sitting there and they're talking about their jobs at some insurance company or something like that. And you'd sit there and you'd say, you know, you're having this inner dialogue and you're thinking, you, you don't know what trouble is. Yeah. And that's a very arrogant position to be in. Um, but it was my reality at that particular time. So, you know, back then, I guess, like I was saying about a year and a half before, my medical examiner, who, by the way, was a physician, uh, mm-hmm. the chief ME at the time, came to me and said, uh, he told me what I just said. Mm-hmm. He said, a lot of people look look to you around here. You need to suck it up and get busy and do what you're supposed to do. Okay. Wow. All right. Isn't that something? I'll do it. And and even yeah. even, you know, even afterwards... <laughs> Afterwards, when um, when uh, my my wife went, and this is this is the days before PTSD was as well known as it is now. Mm-hmm. This would have been in two thousand five. We knew about it, obviously. 
they took me to uh, county county directed me to go. To, uh, they took me to a hospital and uh, in Atlanta ran all kinds of tests. They finally got me to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said uh, my wife had to take me there. She was pregnant too, and she the took me to the psychiatrist. It's this lady that had um, her and her family had immigrated when she was a teenager from India. Her name was Dr. Rao. I'll never forget as long as I live. And she had had done her residency in Washington State and had dealt with, uh, as a resident, had dealt with Vietnam veterans coming back. And she she told me, and I I was a quivering mass. I couldn't even talk. Um, And I was like a child. Uh, I I really was. I was afraid of everything. And it was just like a total shutdown. Mm. And she's talking to my wife. She says to my wife, um, we're going to give him medication to, which turned out to be a drug called Seroquel, which is horrible. Um, It's generally given to like schizophrenics. Um, Mm. His brain has to shut down. And I slept for, I don't know, probably four days. And then I had to go back and see her. And after that, after they just got me calmed down and um, she looked at me, the psychiatrist, and I, I, I was almost nonverbal. And she looked at me as I sat there in the room and she told my wife and, and me, she said, uh, I, I tried to form the words work, work. And she said, Mr. Morgan, I'm telling you this right now. You can never go back to your occupation. And if you attempt to, I will have you judicially committed. Wow. And that's what she told me at the time. And, <laughs> you know, when somebody, you know, when, yeah, when that reality hits you, you and you're a man and that's all yeah. you've ever done since right. I was 20 years old, that's wow. all I've, that's all I'd ever known. That reality, yeah. you know, you certainly realize that you're, you know, you're not the cock of the walk, man. You know, you yeah. are, you're not 10 foot tall and bulletproof. This death's going to get you, man. Mm-hmm. It's going to get you. You know, what I love about that story. Joe Scott, is that, you know, all of us, you know, as men, you know, we're taught to suck it up, push forward, and even our own pride, especially when our family is involved, you know, it's, you know, there's no other option but to push forward. And what, what, what you, the story you just shared does a couple things for me. And, and I think for our listeners also is to let everyone know that, that it's normal and okay to feel that pressure and seek help, right? There are so many people, yeah. and, and we're seeing that more and more, where it's more acceptable now. But, you know, mm-hmm. 10, 15, 20 years ago, the idea of a guy saying, you know, I'm having a breakdown. What, what do you mean? Right. Is There's work to be done, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, the story you shared is, is so profound, again, because it shows that this does happen. This It's real, it does happen. And I'll be honest with you, when you were talking about the decades of seeing death, I was wondering in the back of my mind, like, how has this not impacted him? And as you just shared, it, it does, which how could it not? Right. I've worked with yeah. physicians in the past where, you know, uh, they almost become callous towards, you know, the care they they provide where it's just rote, you know, they walk in, they do right. the workup, they leave in. And, and I've often wondered, you know, are they really just burned out on this and just sticking with it because they feel like there's no, no other option. Um, so thank you for sharing that story. I really appreciate it. The second question I have, or the, the question I have for you is this, you've shared a lot, a lot of great information about the profession, um, mm-hmm. the decades, uh, that, that, you, that you've been in the profession. What's one thing, and you have a podcast, so you've, you've shared a lot there as well. And for those, again, right. that are listening, uh, I strongly encourage you to check out the podcast, which uh, is called the Body Bags Podcast. But what's one thing that people may not know about you that you wish they did? I think that I receive more joy in the moment. I like that. Then I have ever to this point in my life, I've literally in the last decade, it took me about a decade. I've been in higher ed now. My first stop in higher ed after I left the Emmy's office was at a college in Dahlonega, Georgia, up in the Blue Ridge Mountains called North Georgia. They gave me a chance. 
and I became an instructor up there for almost a decade. And it, it took me about a decade and I still had residual stuff when I got here to Jacksonville state. Uh, I've been here for almost a decade now. I am, I have been able to find my joy before I was here. Like today, I've got this old beat up boat that's on a river. That's, I don't know, probably 25 miles from our home. And my wife and I loaded up our dogs and went and just rode up and down the river. And in that moment in time, um, I value those moments more than anything else because I'm no longer, you know, my problem was, was that my entire identity was Joseph Scott Morgan, medical legal death investigator. And I'd go around pounding my chest about all my laurels. You know, you create this huge resume, you know, I help, help design the national curriculum for medical legal death investigators in this country that there were only 12 of us that put this thing together. Um, and that that's something that, you know, I did that, you know, well, um, that and a, I don't know, dollar 89 cents will get me a copy of a cup of coffee at Waffle House. You know, that's, that's what it's worth at this point in my life. What, what's really truly of value to me are those these little tiny moments. Getting up at as crazy as it is at 4:30 in the morning with my wife and drinking coffee before she has to drive to Georgia. We live in Alabama. She has to drive into the Eastern Time Zone every day to go teach in a public school. I sit there with her. I I love that moment, and that's for me that. Uh, being a husband uh, and being a grandfather, I, I wouldn't, there's nothing that I value, you know, all the stuff I do in media, I, I like doing it because it's, it keeps me intellectually sharp mm. and I try to knock away some of the falsehoods that are out there relative to forensics. That's my one little piece. I try to stay in my lane, but that's more of an intellectual exercise. Mm. I take great joy in the fact that tonight after we're done. I'm going to go get in that bed with my wife tonight. I'm not going to have to go into downtown Atlanta yeah. and stand over another dead body. I'm not going to have to go notify anybody again. I'm not going to have to listen to the screams of somebody ever again. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to have to do that. I have done my time in that period. And now I secondarily, I take great joy in educating these kids that, you know, kind of pass through, you know, you see them after two decades, it's kind of weird. You know, you got them now that, you know, these kids that have, you know, they're ascended into the ranks of different law enforcement agencies and crime labs and places like that, you know, where they're supervisors now and all that stuff. And it's, that's a weird thing to see because I got to tell you guys that day when I left the medical examiner's office all those years ago, I, I really thought I was dying. I really mm. did. And, so, and I, I hate to be ham handed and say, well, every day is a miracle. But for me, it's like, it, it is, it's amazing to me. You know, my, you know, my world has opened up to me at this moment. Wow. That's, that's awesome. It is awesome. And, and I want to move into the final four, but um, so think of it like this. And, and if you want, we'll, yeah. I'll alter the question a little bit, but the standard question is, if you were sitting at a dinner table and it was four chairs at the table, it was you and three others alive or dead. Who would you want to have at the dinner table with you and why? I'm going to modify it and say, since we've been talking about so much death, if you want, you can have three alive people at your dinner table. We don't have to worry about the dead ones. But, but basically, who would you like to have dinner with? If anyone on the planet, uh, anyone anywhere on the planet, alive or dead, who wow. and why? Let's see. Um, okay. Well, if they're alive, let's see. Um, I've, um, I would probably, probably for me, um, I, let's see, I would probably pick, um, my uncle who, um, is, 
a retired judge now mm. and uh, lives down in New Orleans because I don't get to see enough of him. And I, I like to see. I like to kind of sit at his feet and just listen to him talk about things. Um, probably, um, I would say probably, um, I love, I love 60 soul music. So, and particularly from New Orleans. So probably Irma Thomas, um, who's, uh, um, She's a New Orleans queen of soul, and I've met her uh, and have wept over her music. And I love, I love her. Oh. <laughs> really, I'm kind of a fanboy when it comes to her. Um, and I would say probably, um, probably. Uh, another favorite artist of mine is Van Morrison mm-hmm. and he's still with Ooh. us. He's still alive touring over in Ireland. I love music. And so being a New Orleanian, of course, I love music. Um, and you know, that, that would probably be it if you're talking about, because I, I've met, you know, I've met like people that are supposedly really famous and mm. I, it's, I've met athletes and, you know, there's a few that are interesting, but, I like to be around creative people, you know, particularly people sure. that can sing and create music. Okay. And that's something that, that I love. Uh, I love particularly people that can sing, sing soul music because mm-hmm. it's like they, they've taken a dive into, into a world that um, um, after you sit there and you listen to their music for a while, you understand, they understand deeper aspects mm-hmm. of things that sometimes the stuff that they sing about harkens back to things that I saw as a death mm. that only had a hint at, but for some reason they were able to touch the veil, you know, with a lot of their music. So that, that would probably be my choice. It's kind of boring. Oh, right it's here. exciting. That's, Thank that's you. That's my choice. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, look, looking back on your life, mm-hmm. personally or professionally, what's been your greatest success? Uh, professionally, I would say, uh, actually the position I'm in right now, um, when I was uneducated, uh, and had to put myself through college and nobody in my family, particularly on my father's side had ever been to college. And, um, now I'm the distinguished scholar of applied forensics at Jacksonville state, a tenured wow. professor and associate professor. So for me, this is my my greatest uh, accomplishment. Plus I get to represent my university everywhere we go. And we're small university, Southern Appalachia. We're rural. I love rural people. I've spent enough time in big cities in my career. Mm. I love being in this environment and giving these kids that are, a lot of these kids are really poor first generation uh, attendees at college and allowing or giving, not allowing, but giving them an opportunity to see inside a world that not many people get to, even if you go to a, a bigger university, you know, I, I think that I bring like this little, this little thing from my experiences that opens up a broader world from them for them. So for me, that is, uh, personally, without a doubt, the success of my marriage, uh, without a doubt, because, and this is why, um, um, you know, people seek, I think many times to have someone that is, um, that truly stands by them. Um, mm. You know, my wife and I have survived uh, uh, the death of a child. Uh, we've overcome uh, my my issues with PTSD and the things she had to bear witness to, like coming home at night from work, and not many wives have to deal with this, telling me to stand outside and take my clothes off mm. because I smell of decomposing bodies. Mm. Um, when you, you know, when, what, you know, what she endured, you know, going through that and we're, our marriage is stronger now than it's ever been. I, I don't, there's not too many other people I want to be with, um, other than her, you know, it's just, it's just that journey that I'm on with her. We relish every moment. of it. Awesome. I love it. So, I love it. So here's one. Um, what would you say is your greatest superpower? Superman flies. 
Uh, the Hulk has his strength and the Flash has his speed. But what is your earthly superpower? Uh, I think uh, I have uh, acquired acquired uh, the ability to stay calm in really difficult situations and be present in the moment, knowing that I, I had to be laser focused on what I was doing and not be distracted no matter what was going on. So I have this, I think, um, a God-given ability People have God-given abilities, but it's like a muscle that you have to exercise. And I was given an opportunity to exercise that a lot. Um, interestingly enough, I can stand to be around a decomposing maggot-infested corpse, but I don't do well with crappy diapers. <laughs> nor, nor I. Go figure. <laughs> nor I. <laughs> hey, what can I say? That's interesting. So tell me this. What would be the title of your biography if you were to write one today? Um, well, I've been toying with an idea um, of uh, um, actually called uh, um, A View from the Table, A Life with the Dead. And the okay. table is the autopsy table and kind of... Um, you know, my it's it's a further continuation of blood beneath my feet. Um, you know, and you know, having written a memoir, you know, it it was about that journey that I went through there. But now, you know, now I've got two decades, almost full two decades in media. I mean, everything from ABC, NBC, Discovery Channel, uh, Oxygen, um, uh, Fox. Uh, News Nation. I mean, all of these things that I appear on, Nancy Grace in particular, because if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have my podcast uh, because I've been kind of her go-to forensic guy for now many years. There's, you know, at HLN and now I just make myself available to her. So my view it has changed now from where I was a practitioner and I was seeing these things in real time. Um and working them in the streets. And now I have a different perspective of mm. um, taking it in through the filter of the media and trying to kind of, you know, what my impressions are of the world as it's seen uh, through the eyes of a death investigator. Love it. Love it. You from the table. Yeah. I want to just thank you, uh, Joe Scott. This has been an amazing experience. And, and, and I'm sitting here just the way you described the death and, and the, my, from my world, I've been in the food business for quite some time, and I deal with a lot of slaughterhouses and hogs, and and just the the way it's from a body because it's this carcass as well. But it's just, uh, I mean, you brought some humanity to it and different perspectives. So I want to thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your stories, and um, and thanks for the humanity of death. I mean, it's it's I, I man, it's fascinating. So thank you very very much. You're quite welcome. And just to add to that, we've had a, a number of guests in our podcast, and, and they, they're all interesting. Everyone's interesting. We've never had um, an author, a professor, a forensic scientist. And what, what I appreciate about everything you shared today is the, the human side of things, you know, the fact that, you know, you definitely have a passion for what you do. Um, when you're actually in the field, you definitely... Um, uh, approached it with a sense of care. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to be on our podcast, Joe Scott. Thank you, gentlemen. It's, it's been a blast. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored. 